Welcome to The Hero's Journey, a podcast that explores the lives, challenges, and triumphs of some of our planet's greatest activists. I'm Ashley Lukens, your host and your guide, as we wander across our digitally connected planet and learn just what people are doing to make this world a better place. From lawyers to chefs, students to elders, this podcast is as much about strategy as it is about hope and inspiration. When it comes to overcoming the impossible, sometimes you have to see it and hear it to believe it. Welcome back to the hero's journey in our final episode of season one, which was also the first episode that we launched live. In this episode, we talk with the plaintiffs and the attorneys and some of the legal groundbreaking work of our children's trust. This episode is really important because it helps to frame out a long-term strategy for litigators like us at CFS for building the legal case for government accountability about the actions they take to promote climate change. In these lawsuits, it's youth that are demanding that the government hold themselves accountable for taking actions that are actively exacerbating our climate crisis. This episode was really awesome to record, but even more so, I highly suggest that you check out the organization Our Children's Trust, because since then, they've won landmark cases both in Hawaii and in Montana I look forward to all your comments and please stay tuned. We have an awesome season two lined up for you. See you there. Really grateful to Isaac and Levi for joining us in the midst of busy school schedules on the East Coast. Um, I'm here in Hawaii, so it's only 2 p.m. and firmly in the middle of the workday. Um The purpose of today's call is to launch our podcast and know that our podcast launches on Monday. So you can find the hero's journey on all podcast platforms. And um, we're super grateful to the Joseph Campbell Foundation who allows us to use the name, the hero's journey. We also have a podcast website, theherojourneypodcast.com. And you can find all of Center for Food Safety's work at www.centerforfoodsafety.org. When we sort of took charge of doing a podcast, I will tell you my team had no idea how to do a podcast. We had to Google how to do a podcast. And we knew the point of the podcast was to help elevate some of the critical conversations that are driving the environmental movement. And we knew that no better way to do that was to do it through storytelling of the people that are doing the work. Um, And we have some amazing people doing the work here on this conversation. And so I'm gonna let you guys introduce yourself just briefly your name and kind of the work you're doing um, in the environment or in this movement to sort of protect our mother earth. George, you want to get started? Thanks, Ashley. And hello to all of you. I'm George Kimbrell. I'm the legal director at the Center for Food Safety. And I just want to echo Ashley's welcome to all of you. We're super excited to launch this podcast. And particularly, I'm super excited to be on board for this opening episode. 
uh, and talk about the, Gi the Giuliani case and how important it is and what it represents. Uh, so yeah, I've been with CFS for 17, 18 years now, um, overseeing our legal operations. And of course, we work the intersection of food and agriculture and its impacts on health and the environment, um, representing farmers and conservationists and others affected by industrial agriculture and trying to address those ills. Um, I'm also an adjunct professor of law at Lewis and Clark Law School, where I teach food and agriculture law uh, and some other things. So again, um, mostly along for the ride today. Super excited to be here for this. Thank you for having me. Thanks, George. Andrea. Yeah, thank you so much. It's a, such a pleasure to be here, particularly I've had the pleasure to work with C CFS over the years. I guess I'm a recovering industrial agricultural pollution lawyer, <laughs> but I'm senior litigation attorney at Our Children's Trust and now exclusively represent young people in climate change cases against governments that we'll be speaking to you about later today. Um, and I'm joining you from Seattle, Washington. Thanks, Andrea. And the stars of the show today, uh, Isaac, you want to start and introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you, Ashley. Um, my name is Isaac Verga. I'm 20 years old, and I am a junior at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Um, I'm one of the plaintiffs on the federal climate lawsuit, Juliana versus United States. And I also conduct one-day trainings um, with my mom. Uh, with the organization Climate Change Recovery, where we train youth and sometimes adults uh, on the climate crisis and how to develop your public speaking skills so you can effectively talk to your public officials about any social issue, but we go with the lens of the climate crisis. Mm, I love that, Isaac, and I love that you do it with your mom. I really wish my daughter would do some activism with me. Uh, Levi, joining us from rainy Florida, tell us what's what's going on. First of all, in your physical environment, are you okay? Like, well, how has the hurricane impacted your community? Yes, yeah, so sorry if there's uh, bad quality. Um, so I'm in Melbourne, Florida right now. Um, the hurricane, it went by us uh, last night. Um, we're still getting some of the outer bands of it. Um, it just was really, really windy. Um, our backyard partially flooded in some areas and so did our side yard, um, but we're uh, pretty much okay. We have some internet issues because the power went out um, right now. So that's what we're dealing with right now, but we're pretty much air all good. Um, but yeah, I'm Levi, uh, I'm 15 and I'm the youngest plaintiff on Juliana versus the United States. And then also versus the state of Florida, which I'm also the youngest plaintiff. That's awesome, Levi. And I'm, I'm, we're going to go back to Levi to hear a little bit about how he got involved. But to take a step back, you know, I think there are a lot of us that don't quite fully understand the hook in Juliana, like why it's a case, what you're litigating for, what you're litigating against. Um, so I'd love to start there with you, Andrea. Like, can you tell us a little bit about why this case is innovative? Sure. You know, most of the environmental litigation that we've seen over the last several decades is really focused and grounded in the amazing statutory we, law we have in this country. So Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, 
And how that's designed is um, agencies essentially issue permits or regulations for specific facilities. And often the litigation is focused on appeals of agency decisions granting a permit or appeals of specific incidents of pollution associated with a facility. Climate change is a little bit different because climate change is a systems problem that we have, right? It's, it's a result of the energy systems that we have created over the years, our transportation systems, how we build our buildings. So how we frame our case is it's really more in line with the kind of institutional reform cases that you saw during the civil rights era, like Brown versus Board of Education, or there's been a tremendous number of cases challenging education systems, for example, for being inadequately funded or for being um, not providing the infrastructure and education that students are constitutionally entitled to. So our cases are framed through that lens. So we are challenging the governments who are creating these systems and the conduct that they take in operating these systems. So you know, for example, with the federal government, they lease a tremendous amount of federal lands and federal waters for fossil fuel activities, which results in about 25% of the emissions that comes from the United States. And while that's, you know, they do that on a permit by permit basis, what you have overall is a tremendous amount of emissions that are coming from that system. And it's the federal government that creates our energy policy. You know, under Bush, it was drill, baby, drill, um, Obama, all of the above. Um, and so you have the presidential administrations creating these different energy policies that are really the root, uh, root problem that we're dealing with. So that's really the legal approach we're taking. And then we really look at climate change as a human, human rights issue. You know, it's not just about pollution, it's, it's affecting people's lives, their liberties, their properties, fundamental rights that we never allowed the government to take away. So that really puts us in the realm of the Constitution in this country. That's how we protect human rights um, in the United States is through the Constitution. So Juliana is a constitutional case where we are challenging the federal government's creation and operation of a, state, of, of a national energy system that's based on fossil fuels. And the federal government has created this energy system despite knowing for over 50 years that the burning of fossil fuels is highly dangerous and will result in catastrophic impacts. Um, it's not a political issue, you know, from the administrations, the Johnson administration, as you go through Obama, Biden, you see the same thing. Um, you see a complete dependence and perpetuation of, of um, our dependence on fossil fuels. And so we represent young people because young people are disproportionately affected by the climate crisis. Not only do their developing bodies make them more susceptible to particular climate impacts like the air pollution associated with fossil fuel use, but they're living on this planet longer than, than older generations. So they're going to be exposed to the impacts far longer than other generations of people. And essentially what has happened because of the, the conduct that continues the use of fossil fuels, we have put our children in a very difficult situation. We are making it very expensive for them to continue to live their lives um, in places around the world. And um, they don't vote, you know, young people don't vote. And even if they've reached the age of 18, 19, 20, they still lack political power because they can't lobby. 
they don't have the money to lobby like corporations or older generations of, of citizens do. So um, our de democratic system is designed to protect the rights of the minorities like young people um, through the court system. So that's what we're asking the courts to do. And we have argued that the federal government's energy system has violated the youth's constitutional rights to life, liberty, property, and equal protection of the law. And has also violated what's called the public trust doctrine, which is an ancient legal doctrine found in a number of different countries around the world that essentially holds that the federal government is the sovereign government has certain essential foundational duties to protect natural resources that are, are common to all of us and which we depend upon for our survival. So in 2015, we represented 21 plaintiffs um, from across the United States, two of whom are here today. Um, we brought a case challenging at the time. It was against President Obama and his administration. The case has been going on for seven years, so um, almost half of Levi's life. <laughs> um, and it's uh, been incredibly incredible pr procedural twists and turns. Um, it's taught in many law schools around the country, not because of the groundbreaking nature of some of the decisions, but also because of the procedural oddities and the lengths to which the um, presidential administrations have gone to cl essentially close these courthouse doors um, to these young people. So um, I look forward to talking a little bit more about the nuances, but that's that's really what the nature of the case is. Thanks, Andrea. And George, I know you've been in the game of climate litigation for quite a bit. Um, and I know Center for Food Safety filed one of the first climate cases federally. But I'm wondering if you can help people take a step back, like the law professor that you are, and help them understand why this is a significant strategy when it comes to climate and when it comes to sort of building a future where our government is actually doing its job to protect future generations. Yeah, I mean, Nothing greater could be at stake, right? I mean, I think Andrea did a great job laying out the basics and, you know, a couple of things I would just underscore. I mean, first of all, um, this is the existential crisis of our time, right? The climate crisis. So to the extent that we are have any urgency, uh, I think we need to use all the tools in the toolkit to try to address it, litigation, policy, campaign, activism. And so litigation being not the whole answer, but a part of potentially the answer. And litigation having a place uh, that's both legal as well as extra legal. You know, we saw that with our own climate litigation that you alluded to, uh, Ashley, Mass for EPA in 2007 when it went to the Supreme Court in that case that was originally started just like this case in 1999. So it took eight years of litigation to get to that point. And, um, you know, I, in that case, the issue was a statutory one, unlike the constitutional and common law issues that Andrea has been explaining to us. But nonetheless, what was really at stake in that case was a narrative. What was going on at the time during the W. Bush years was a question in Washington, D.C. when I was there as to is climate change actually happening? And because of that case and the Supreme Court saying, you know, that climate emissions were cognizable or mattered under the Clean Air Act in that instance, uh, the conversation shifted to, yes, it's real. And what are we going to do about it now uh, to our uh, everlasting shame? I think as a government that we haven't done anything about it. But nonetheless, um, the effect of the case was to shift the narrative in in uh, halls of power in D.C. and other places in policymakers, stakeholders and around the country, really, in public opinions that 
the Supreme Court has said climate change is real and now we need to do something about it. Um, so, I, I mean, I think the case and the narrative that it presents and the heroic plaintiffs that are in it are, are very, very important as far as giving young people a voice, empowering, um, you know, affected communities, traditionally marginalized communities, all of those things that are so important. And then, you know, being a legal nerd for a moment about what Andrea was talking about and seeing um, uh, the paradigm shifting ideas that are presented here by herself and Julia Olson and Mary Wood and all the other scholars that have helped formulate this case is very exciting. And, and so the case in itself and its success is important, of course, but it's also what the case represents. And what the case represents is a battle of ideas and narratives about what our government is here to do and how governments serve the people best and what our constitution means fundamentally, what the common law means. And you know, right now it, it's a bit dark out there. Uh, you know, we have a mega score storm at Levi's door, uh, among other pressing things. But generally, in the courts as well, um, you know, we have 200 judges right now appointed uh, by former President Trump. We have a supermajority at the Supreme Court of um, you know reactionary conservative justices there that are changing the law in fundamental ways. Uh, against kind of a progressive interpretation of the law. And I think it's really important that we have to win the battle of ideas. And the way to do that is to have better ideas and to put them forth and to lay down markers in the sand um, and to build a constitution. And maybe it's an exile to begin with, but eventually uh, it becomes law. And this is the way you do that. You write about it, uh, you write visionary ideas and you bring them forth in visionary cases, just like Brown v. Board of Education that Andrea was referencing, which I think is an apt and the best possible comparison to the Giuliani cases and their line um, and other civil rights cases of that time uh, by the NAACP. So I think we all need to be viewing it in a generational lens uh, in that way. Um, and it's just very exciting and inspiring. So it's the perfect group and topic to have for the um, the kickoff of the hero's journey, you know, and this podcast and its theme. Yeah, I really appreciate George and Andrea, the level of sort of sophisticated maneuvering that lawyers um, undertake when you're doing public interest litigation and environmental litigation and, and litigating on issues that are as complicated as climate change. And in my work at Center for Food Safety, um, I come to it from an impacted community. And I come to it um, from a place that has been irreparably harmed by the actions of the US government, including the US military here in Hawaii. And Isaac, you know, knowing the journey of many to become a plaintiff um, in a case that takes this long view, like how did you get here? And how do you understand this part of your work as a part of the fight for climate justice? That's a very good question. Um, I guess I could start at the beginning. So I was really young. I was like 11 years old or so um, when I fully had a realization about the climate crisis and how it disproportionately impacts youth. I did a science project at the end of my fifth grade year where I wanted to just test the waters and quiz my peers on just basic climate science knowledge like PPM, what carbon dioxide is, ozone layer, global warming, and things of that nature. Um, and for the most part, 
no one really understood what any of those terms meant or how those are how the climate crisis is probably the biggest issue of our generation and i that didn't really sit right with me um knowing that we are the impacted generation i wanted to seek out like-minded people who want to be active and do something about this um, which led me to this organization uh plant for the planet um, it's a united nations environmental program sponsored organization that trains youth on the climate crisis and how even though people try to make the climate crisis really divisive and political we can really solve it really easily by simply just planting trees hence the name plant for the planet and I joined that organization when I was 11 or 12. Um, there was a training that they had up in Seattle, Washington, and I'm from Portland, Oregon, or more specifically Beaverton, Oregon. So that was like a three hour drive up with my mom, my sister, and my dad. And I felt extremely empowered because there was other youth my age and diverse youth at that too. There was minorities there too. Um, who understood the impact of the climate crisis and how youth voices are going to be the most important voices in speaking out on this battle. And so I joined that organization. And because of that organization, I had many opportunities to speak at rallies and panels and at, um, uh, uh, speak with local officials. And so um, at around when I was about 13, um, I got to speak at the Portland Eco Film Festival. And uh, Nick, uh, who worked with um, uh, Archland's Trust at the time, um, saw me on the stage with a whole bunch of much older people. I was the only person in middle school or in high school. Uh, everyone else was a college student. And he noticed how I was really outspoken and really passionate and reached out to me uh, after the panel um, saying, talking about uh, Archland's Trust and how I should get involved with them um, and how there's plenty of other youth and sp specifically POC youth who want to do something about the climate crisis. And so I just kind of kept in the loop with uh, Archland's Trust. And when they were talking about how they want to propose a federal climate lawsuit, not just the state lawsuits that they had going on at the time. Um, I was, I jumped at the opportunity. My sister and I are both plaintiffs in this lawsuit. And we figured that this was the best way to combat the climate crisis. Because once it's the evidence of how the government has been negligent to this issue is presented in court, it's set in stone. And you can't go back on that word, otherwise it's perjury. And so we figured that we were just ex we were just extremely excited for the opportunity, um, and yeah, and that's how I kind of started at uh, being a plaintiff. Mm. And just to shed a little light, more light on like being a plaintiff, like can you tell us like what is it involved in terms of your time and being able to tell your story, and how has it felt sort of being in relationship with this sort of like litigation focused strategy yeah so all the plaintiffs have their own harms and reasons for joining the lawsuit um for myself it's that i have asthma and living in oregon um i am subject to forest fires and the smoke and harms of that um the wildfire season 
originally in Oregon around the 70s used to be just under a month, just under 30 days. And now it has nearly tripled. Um, and so I have, my impact is that I have asthma and that the high risk of wildfires impacting my life um, was my driving force is why I joined the lawsuit. Um, back in 2020, uh, there was a big fire in Oregon um, and I couldn't stay outside at all. And so my parents luckily um, had an opportunity to send me out to the East Coast uh, so I can wait out the rest of um, the wildfire season. And I was doing college online at the time. Um, and so that was, that just worked out with our schedule perfectly. But many people do not have that opportunity. Many people have to stay in their homes and stay where they're located and kind of just suffer through it. And so, yeah, that's the main reason why I joined the lawsuit, yeah. Thanks so much, Isaac. Andrea, I know, I think we're, for everyone who's listening and Zooming in, we, Levi, our other plaintiff, is um, Zooming in from Florida, and I think having some technical difficulties. So Andrea, can you tell us, I mean, this is a part of your organization and your specific strategy for kind of moving cases. This is not your only case. Um, and you've, you've communicated to me that this case in particular has had a lot of consequence already. Can you help us understand like what the impact has been thus far? Sure. Well, the first cases that we started filing were in 2011. Um, and that was really the first sort of hatch of cases where we were taking a human rights based approach. They were on behalf of youth and we were arguing that governments had failed to act to address climate change because at that time, you know, most governments did not have climate policies in place. Um, and we learned a tremendous amount um, through those litigations. We had made some small steps forward, some were dismissed, um, but we learned a lot. And, that, and, and George will tell you this, with the law, you probably learn most from your failures because you learn, you know, okay, we need to pivot and take a different approach. And I think what we learned from that first approach was, you know, governments aren't just sitting back and twiddling their thumbs while climate change happens. Governments are creating the systems and controlling the systems. You can't buy a car unless it's certified as compliant with air quality standards by the federal government, right? So there's a tremendous amount of government control. So we really pivoted to focus on the affirmative actions that governments are taking that is causing the climate crisis. So that was one of our first sort of learning moments early on in the campaign was, you know, focusing on what governments are actually doing. Yeah, and I just want to clarify yeah. this because I think it's a really important point that we've had as we've been chatting about the case on social media and promoting it. I mean, what this case does is say that the government is complicit in enabling climate change. Correct. And we've won that in Juliana. So in the Ninth Circuit, they have recognized that the United States government is a substantial factor in causing the injuries that Isaac is experiencing and that Levi is experiencing. And they do that through their policies, through their energy policies and their preference for fossil fuels. That's a huge win. 
to be able to demonstrate that. And remember, United States is responsible for about 25% of cumulative emissions. So while we've been surpassed by China and India, we are still the big dog in the room, particularly when you look at our per capita emissions. So that is a really important win. And I think it's a really important shift in the narrative to recognize that you know, this isn't just a problem about choices consumers are making. That's certainly relevant, but the government is really shaping and controlling the systems that are causing the harm. That's a really big point and a big win that we've had. The second big win is the recognition that young people like Isaac are being injured. You know, that George was talking about your case, the Massachusetts VEPA. You know, in that case, there's a dissent by Chief, uh, Chief Justice Roberts who thought the injuries were far-fetched. You know, oh, you know, this is gonna happen in, in several years, right? This isn't happening now. We don't, we don't have that problem. Hopefully Chief Justice Roberts would recognize that today, but we really don't have that problem. Courts are recognizing that Isaac is being injured today. He is being exposed to wildfire smoke that is harming his health and his ability to live a healthy life disproportionately to other other um, generations of Americans. So that's another big win that we've had in the case. Probably the most monumental win with respect to the law was in 2016, um, Judge Ann Aiken, who's the district court judge in Oregon where we filed the case, recognized for the first time that there's a fundamental right that's protected by the US Constitution to a, cl a climate right, a life-sustaining climate. So you have a right, it's an attribute of your right to life, your right to liberty, that you have a right to a life-sustaining climate system, a, a climate system capable of sustaining human life. That's groundbreaking. Um, for reasons that I will never understand, federal courts hate the notion of the right to a clean environment. They've you know, universally rejected cases that have made arguments for that in federal, under federal law. Um, and so for the first time, she says, you know, this isn't about pollution or a clean river, you know, not smoggy skies. This is about the ability of people to exercise their fundamental liberty rights and their rights to existence in this country. So that was a monumental ruling. And what has happened from that ruling, that is what's really spread like wildfire around the world. So there's other courts that have recognized that there are, there are fundamental rights to a climate system. They've tied them to the rights of life, the right to liberty, the right to personal security, property, privacy. They're framed in a variety of different ways around the world. But Judge Aiken was really one of the first to create that right. And in Hawaii, it has recently been recognized this year by your, Hawaii, your Supreme Court that the right to a clean and healthful environment encompasses a right to a life-sustaining climate system. And that came from Judge Aiken. So that was a huge and monumental step in our litigation and sort of where what's missing and what we're still seeking is a remedy. You know, we've recognized that government are injuring their ch these children. They're responsible for these constitutional injuries. And as George said, in our system of, of our democratic system of government, what is the role of courts in ordering a remedy when government is affirmatively injuring you and taking away your constitutional rights? 
And that's really where we are now in the litigation is whether there's a remedy available to these kids. So Isaac, you get involved in this as a youth activist who's articulate and speaking on climate publicly. And you go through this court case, which for those of us who follow the law sort of colloquially, you know, we're thinking that there's like a big courtroom fight and a jury and you get to leave the courtroom and justice is served, but it's actually all this, these little procedural uh, articulations and the decision. So I can imagine that some of these wins don't feel like wins because they're about long-term litigation. And I can also imagine that through this process, you as a plaintiff have been shut out of the process again and again and again. Like what if the wins and losses felt like for you? Like, have you wanted to quit? Do you want to get more involved? Like what's it been like? Definitely um, being a plaintiff and experiencing the wins, quote wins and quote losses, um, it is definitely emotionally tolling. Um, uh, I remember back in, I think it was 2018 when we were in Eugene and we were originally had a trial date set. Um, all the plaintiffs were in Eugene for the hearing um, or the beginning of trial and there was people internationally, news reporters and supporters who came out to witness this monumental um, uh, court case go through and start. And the day that we heard, same day, that we heard that they have paused our lawsuit um, and we will not be proceeding to trial was emotionally draining. Um, I felt extremely burnt out. I had been a climate activist for a good part of my life and I felt that this was a major setback um, and that it wasn't over for the lawsuit but it was definitely a big procedural halt um, that may not be cleared anytime soon and that 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 took a big mental toll um, but we then proceeded to go to the ninth circuit court out in uh uh, San Francisco, um, California, and getting to hear Julia, our uh, lead attorney on this lawsuit, litigate in front of, <laughs> I don't remember the judge's name, but there was a judge on the panel of the three judges in the Court of Appeals who that weekend uh, had been accused of uh, sexual assault and harassment. And um, he was just all over Julia's arguments and would not let her speak and would not uh, let her have a finished full thought. Um, and seeing that happen in the courtroom, even though it was really unprofessional, it made me feel extremely empowered that even though this judge um, is trying to shut this case down and uh, make Julia's arguments seem um, not, functional um julia kept pushing through and with her argument and we ended up winning that decision in the ninth circuit um back in 2019 and so the the highs and lows of this lawsuit definitely are deep and we all feel them um i felt extremely burnt out during the covid year uh, because a lot of our climate action 
is direct climate action. So it involves being around people and um, doing rallies and um, things of that sort. And so I felt extremely burnt out and unmotivated. Um, but you I know, also- You know, Isaac, that's been a theme that we've sort of probed throughout this podcast is like the burnout feeling of these long haul issues. And I'm wondering like, what did you do to bring yourself back to a restored place? Like, how do you take care of yourself as an activist? That's a good question. Um, I'm very close with all of the plaintiffs. And so being able to like contact them, um, just talking about life and things that regular youth talk about that aren't necessarily climate activists related. A lot of the times um, when I was younger, before I was 18, uh, being a climate activist, a lot of people thought that that was my whole personality and persona, is that I'm just this hardcore activist who doesn't have any fun, who doesn't get time to be a kid or enjoy themselves. But um, I do. And it's also just happens to be with fellow climate activists um, who are very normal. Um, we're not weirdos now. Come on. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so it was, it's really nice uh, being able to like be with like-minded people and reconnect with them because that helps me, give me hope and uh, yeah. Levi, welcome back. You made it. Yeah, it took a little while. We were trying to figure out the internet. We were uh, using a mobile hotspot and then the computer just has crashed. So I'm back to the phone. I've bounced back and forth a couple of times, but I'm here now and hopefully for it'll stay. Okay, great. Um, you know, we were storytelling around how Isaac got involved, and I'd love for you to share a little bit about how you got roped into this. Yeah, so I, um, the minister at my Unitarian Universalist church, um, he had been following the things that our Children's Trust um, had been doing before um, the Julian lawsuit, and he when he, uh, I don't remember exactly when he had heard about um, that they were gonna be uh, filing a new lawsuit. He um, knew that I had always been doing things like going to protests um, during those fish kills, um, going to rallies and doing um, various things like that. When he heard about the um, uh, Julian uh, lawsuit before his Julian lawsuit, he uh, knew that it would probably be something that I would um, that I would be passionate about seeing that I want to do. And so he talked to my mom about the lawsuit um, and told her about it. And then my mom contacted Archie's Trust and learned a lot about it. And then um, told me, like how I explained it as well as she could to me as to what it was. And so I ended up agreeing to uh, doing that. And it's been uh, one of the best decisions of my life so far. Hey, that's a pretty, pretty big deal for you, Andrea. Um, what has it felt like, Levi? I mean, if, if this is one of the best decisions of your life, tell me more. Why? Um, it really is just an amazing experience because it's a way that, um, that youth voices can get lifted up um, and we have the ability to um, make change and get this amazing opportunity to fight for something that we're passionate about and that will affect us for our whole lives and for future, uh, in fact, future generations. And so it 
is just really amazing to be able to fight for something that I'm passionate about in such a um, large scale. Thanks, Levi. And we're just really grateful to everybody that's helping you behind the scenes stay on the Zoom. Levi, um, um, Isaac yeah, told us a little bit about his specific injuries with regards to asthma and air and fires in Oregon here, which I can also attest to given that I'm also based in Portland. Can you tell us a little bit about your specific injuries uh, for the Juliana case and how it's negatively impact climate change is negatively impacting you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so some of the biggest thing that we experience uh, here in South Florida is um, increased hur hurricanes, um, which is what we're dealing with right now. Um, we just had a hurricane pass by us last night uh, and still dealing with outer bands of it. Um, just very heavy wind. There's branches all over yard stuff. Um, and we have fish kills um, in the Indian River Lagoon, uh, which is uh, Star State River but it's, uh, it separates the Barry Island where I grew up from the mainland. And um, when there uh, is rising temperatures, rising temperatures help to uh, boost algae growth. And then people uh, will be putting, will put fertilizer on their, um, on their lawns by the Inverell Lagoon. And that ends up draining back into the Inverell Lagoon, which it causes fish kills. So there's thousands, millions, uh, millions of fish just floating up on the surface of the Inverell Lagoon for uh, rotting. And when I used to describe it as going out, when you, if you went outside, it felt like you were inhaling a handful of powdered black pepper, which was my description when I was younger of the way it felt. It is like the most horrible, uh, disgusting smell and you just end up coughing. Um, we have um, algae blooms, which is also part of the fish kills, increased hurricanes. Um, you can, there's effects of the wildlife and there's a lot of issues with flooding as well. Uh, our whole backyard basically was flooded during the hurricanes um, and parts of our street were as well. So you see more um, increase and the, uh, the effects of climate change being more detrimental um, in exposing its way through, I don't know if that was the right word, um, through natural disasters, but is making them worse. Thanks, Levi. And again, really grateful that your family's making this happen in the midst of a hurricane. I know as a mom, I would not want to be dealing with a Zoom call in the moment where I was thinking about the safety of my home and my livelihood. So give mom and dad a thanks. Um, I, it is, it would be a huge um, mistake not to really hone in on um, the fact that you are both men of color and that there has been a history of disenfranchisement for people of color in the court system. And I'm wondering how it's felt for you and maybe Isaac, you can stop to sort of be a black man working with the courts to effectuate change and sort of how you've navigated the contradictions in that. No, yeah, I don't know. Like the reason why I joined this lawsuit is because I am like three million other youth who just proportionally happen to be youth of color who are affected with asthma, and I see this as an opportunity to speak up and represent the voices of youth on cancer in Cancer Alley in the Gulf, um, who 
were born with asthma because of all the pollutants and um, the fossil fuel um, emissions right in the Gulf. And I just, I didn't particularly think that because I'm a man of color, um, I won't seek justice. It was more like, because I'm a man of color, this is my fight. And this is a fight for POCs who are disproportionately affected all across the states um, in the United States. And so it was more of a humbling opportunity to represent those youth affected and um, POCs affected with asthma so we can see justice in our court system. I feel like I have a whole community supporting me. Um, and yeah, it's really nice. How does it show up for you at college? I mean, you were involved in the case pre-college and now you're in college, so. Oh yeah, like I've been a climate activist for so long and I figured that I wanted to incorporate that into my education. And so right now I'm a double major in journalism and environmental science. And what I hope to do with that is tell the stories of marginalized groups who are affected by the climate crisis and give them a platform and an opportunity to tell their stories um, and effectively create change. And that's the, one of the main reasons why I even came out to Howard is because being at HBCU, I'm around a whole bunch of like-minded people and I'm not the only person of color climate activist. My class is filled with people who are very passionate about the environment and want to create their own creative ways of solving the climate crisis. And mine currently is just about being part of this lawsuit, but there's plenty of other people who are like trying to solve the urban food crisis and uh, redlining and red zoning and all that stuff. And so it's, it's really nice being around that type of environment that is very nurturing and supportive and we're all working towards the same goal at the end of the day. Yeah, I'm really hearing the power of community as sort of the antidote to um, hopelessness and that it's like we get the fuel we need to continue this fight like through being with um, like-minded people, people that bring us joy and laughter, and also really want to honor the role of storytelling in this work, um, because I know that there are really important stories that have yet to be told um, to the broader world about not just climate impacts, but climate activism. Levi, how do you imagine this case influencing you and your future? Oh. Um I don't know. I mean, I tend to, when I do something, I focus on what uh, is going on in the moment and what I can do like in the near future. Um, I feel like this lawsuit, it's definitely has shaped the way uh, the me into the person that I am today. Uh, my fellow plaintiffs have helped to do that as well. I mean, it is, it's just like, it's nice and refreshing to constantly be around when I'm doing something uh, with kind of activism not having to worry about who are the people that I'm talking to directly about what I'm doing and how they think um, about like the things that I do, which I have to um, monitor like what I'm gonna, uh, what I say if I'm just having a conversation with somebody that I don't know very well. 
um, nowadays where I live. But this case, it's, I think that it will help me to, I want to do something, so I want to do in college, um, I want to do something um, in relation to climate activism um, and environmental science. Um, I've always wanted to be a marine biologist because I've grown up right next to the beach. Um, no, actually, I was, I had the inner lagoon in my backyard and um, the ocean in my front yard, essentially. And so I've grown up in water, around water. So I want to do something um, along the lines of marine biology um, and something to do with environmental activism. So I feel like it's, I don't know if that answered the question, I got distracted, but I feel like <laughs> this case definitely has generally helped to um, push me in a direction that will be good for me. Um, I wanted I want to do something um, in law enforcement as well. I kind of bouncing around here with those things I like uh, that I want to do. So I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I want to do in college. But I don't really think that is. Levi, I'm 40 and I'm still figuring out what I want to do. So it's going to be a long journey, let me tell you. But I really appreciate. And for those who are just listening in, and um, Levi's got a, a shirt on that says read banned books. And I remember last call, you had another activist shirt on. So way to, way to use fashion to communicate to the world. And coming from Florida, you guys have an access to information issue. So we're really glad you're standing there. Um, yeah, I have a lot of various shirts along these lines. Um, my mom, she has an Etsy shop and she sells shirts that um, it says climate change is real. Um, and it's a stencil that I made when I was... It was actually like right after I first joined the lawsuit, um, I drew it out. And so I have like probably six or seven of those shirts that says climate change is real. Levi, you're in Florida. Like, do people not believe in climate change there? I mean, right now your governor is saying all kinds of crazy. Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> um, I've had people uh, yell and cuss me out about um say like because I was like I wasn't even talking to this one guy it happened like probably a couple months ago I was having a conversation with one of my friends about the lawsuit and this guy basically flipped out he wasn't he wasn't yelling at us directly but it was very obvious that he's like uh, going on about oh these liberal um uh, mother efforts like like losing his mind about it um I've had people that like they like me as a person and they end up when they if they hear about when they heard about the lawsuit and uh, me being involved with uh, climate activism has like noticed that they kind of stopped talking to you. Um, and I've had some interesting conversations with people in relation to climate change and them trying to explain away as to the physical effects that we see. Explain, try to explain that um, without using science. It's been very interesting watching people do that. But I've had very mixed results. Um, my friend group is um, is uh, almost all of them except for uh, one of my friends is very supportive of the lawsuit. And my one friend, he's not. It's not that he does is not supportive of it. Is that he just doesn't understand it. And his parents have pushed him into a mindset that climate change, that all this stuff is made up, and he has a hard time like fully uh, understanding. It, so he's not like rude or anything about it. It's just we don't talk about that, mm. uh, about climate activism. 
I was like, I'm wondering, like I, I think about the litigation work that Center for Food Safety has done in Hawaii, representing impacted communities here that had been harmed by agrochemical companies who were using heavy amounts of pesticides in their research operations. And for many of those folks, it was a huge risk to be involved in the lawsuit. They were risking something, they were risking connections in their community. They were risking their jobs. They were risking respect. Like, did you feel like this was a risky move? And like, what have you had to put on the line to be able to stand in your truth around climate? Um, unlike Levi, I'm from a very blue state. And so the, everyone who I told about the lawsuit, about how I was involved, might not have necessarily had a full understanding about it, but knew that climate change is real and knew that this is supposed to make an impact. And so all of my friends and peers have been extremely supportive. Um, and along with my teachers and professors, um, which is really nice because it really lets me focus on my climate activism instead of worrying about what circles I'm a part of um, to um, who are like preaching to the choir type situation. Like I am around people who understand the severity of the climate crisis and support me in any way that they possibly can. And so it's just really nice to be in that type of environment. Andrea, I wanted to go back to this idea that the plaintiffs have been shut out of the case because I don't know if, I mean, I'm hearing and I can kind of feel in Isaac's storytelling, like the moments of letdown when judges make decisions that fail to acknowledge the significance of this harm or the remedy that's required um, for future generations to be made whole. Can you help folks understand better like how that happened and, and what's on the line? Yep. I hate to do this to everybody, but the concept I will introduce you to is called the petition for the writ of mandamus. Oh, that, <laughs> that is what has happened to us. So in a normal case, you know, so the defendant will file a motion to dismiss when it's denied, then you're on the track to trial, right? That's typically what happens. Most cases, that's what it happens. Very occasionally, you can go up on appeal before trial. But appellate courts generally don't like that because they want the full record, right? They don't want half-baked legal issues. So we won our motion to dismiss. So in a normal world, we were on the track to trial. But what happened is the Department of Justice filed these extraordinary legal tools that have never been invoked as many times as in our case. They filed six petitions for writs of mandamus which is essentially asking the higher courts to take the case away from Judge Aiken. And they're only issued in very, very rare circumstances, but the government did that to us six times. And the Department of Justice have never filed that many petitions for writs of mandamus in any other case. We've done records requests on this. And so what that did was that inhibited the court's ability to hear the evidence at trial. So we've been able to put Isaac's story and Levi's story, they've written you know, declarations, they've written their impacts down, but they have never been able to be in open court where they could tell the judge, 
their story of why their government is harming them and denying them their constitutional rights. They have never been allowed to access justice in that way. And that's what we're hoping to have happen. And after the Ninth Circuit's decision, most recent decision, we've filed a motion to amend our complaint and we're currently waiting for a decision from Judge Aiken, which hopefully seven years in will put this case back on the track to trial. Because, you know, it's vital that you hear the the evidence in open court you know when it came to in the civil rights era with respect to segregation of schools you know you needed witnesses in there to testify what it was like to be in the separate but equal system what did you experience how did it harm you you need to have that evidence the social science that the physical scientists testifying about that we need that reckoning in this country and that's what juliana is hopefully going to achieve um and we haven't had that and it's been extraordinary that these kids have been denied justice so long by democratic administrations republican administrations and now it will be up to Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice. Are they finally gonna let these kids have their day in trial? That's what we will find out in the next couple of months when we get Judge Aiken's ruling. I'm wondering, George, if you can sort of help articulate sort of from your perspective as somebody who not just works through the court system, to effectuate change and um, protect communities and our earth from industrial harms. Like what is this case, what are the lessons that this case give you? And like, how is it influencing your work? Yeah, well, it's, um, I would say, um, what Andrea was talking about with the writs of mandamus, we, we've faced a few, definitely not six in the case, but we've gotten a few. It became a, a key tactic uh, during the Trump administration to for these avoidance ways in more than just the Giuliana case. That's the most extreme example I know of um, as far as trying to avoid meaningful judicial review and remedies, as she was explaining. Um, so, you know, I think for me, there's a couple of things that are, um, I think, at stake here, you know, we've been talking about the, the climate aspects of it, and I think all of us that are public interest attorneys and advocates, we, we, we view the law as a tool for social change. And, you know, part of our theory of change is that we can use the court system to effectuate positive social improvements and change. And certainly there's that. But there's another piece of this that's inherent in what we've been discussing, which is that there's a value in having uh, a meaningful rule of law and a functioning democracy in and of itself. And so there's a value of that like intrinsically in the law as far as trying to protect it and further it. And the most important thing to understand that I think if you're not a lawyer or a law student, maybe you don't get, you haven't been involved in the court system is it's not static, right? It's not stuck in one place. Instead, as we've been discussing, it's a battle of ideas, okay? And so um, things like the common law or property law or things like constitutional law, as, as we've seen, they can fluctuate, they change over time. And what, what they underscore is their value judgments, their policy judgments that are put in place and enshrined in law based on that battle of ideas. And those can be good 
Uh, and as we've seen more recently in some other instances, they can be very bad and reactionary, um, as we've seen with the current Supreme Court. But in order to win that battle of ideas, you have to have ideas. And so as I was saying before, for me, this case, uh, the plaintiffs in the case, uh, the legal theories in the case are you know, some of the, the best and the brightest um, guiding North Stars that we have right now as far as uh, a type of constitutionalism, uh, a type of um, viewing of the law in a, in a progressive um, lens that we need to get to attack to, to address 21st century problems, climate change namely, but, but all of the 21st century problems that we have where we don't really have the statutory tools to do with them right now. And instead, a lot of what we do in our community is you know, squeezing blood from statutory stones from laws that we passed in the 1960s and the 70s to try to um, address and put tourniquets and stop the bleeding on all the harm that's occurring. But at the same time, we have to be doing that changing and shifting of the consciousness. And you, when you have these big paradigm shifting cases, these visionary ideas, they do that. And maybe they don't do it overnight. I mean, the, the saying is, you know, the wheels of justice grind slowly but finally. And that can be, I can tell you from my own experience as an inpatient person, infuriating to see to work on a case 8, 10, 12, 15 years uh, or, or longer. But that's social activism, whether it's through the law or otherwise, you know, uh, it's it's struggle and fail and struggle and fail and struggle and fail and struggle and succeed. That's how social movements work. Um, and I think, you know, again, we talked about the civil rights movement as a, as a leading light and example and showing that to be the case. Uh, so I think, you know, the environmental movement, the climate movement, the, the 21st century problems we face, we need to be addressing it in that, in that way. Um, so to me, those things are deeply intertwined, um, in this case, being a microcosm of, of how to um, really put a line in the sand uh, and say, no, we have a better way forward. We're not just against uh, what maybe is happening over here, but with, this is what we think the law should mean. These are the interests, the rights that should be protected by our constitution, by our common law, um, and fundamentally being put forth. Um, because, you know, again, these things are not static. They shift over time. You see that over the whole history of our constitution and, and others as well, other places in the country, as Andrea said, that have enshrined rights to nature, for example, in their constitutions um, in written and unwritten ways. Um, so that should give us, I think, hope. It's a challenge and an opportunity to do that, um, but we're not stuck. It's really just about trying to um, win that battle of the ideas. I mean, without wanting to get too wonky, and I definitely don't want you guys to respond to this, but it, as a woman, you think about the battle for the right to abortion and how that long view of Ruth Bader Ginsburg effectively changed women's access. And then over a long period of time, conservative politicians and legislators and judges and lawyers have taken that away. So I'm feeling the ebb and flow, the swing of the court system and our constitution and sort of what activists need to do to be able to protect the things that they love and not take for granted the rights that they have. Um, and I'm hoping without knowing the intricacies of legal theory that, that what we're watching with Juliana is that slow and steady building of a logic model and a path to participation inside the courts and inside the community that allows us to 
pass laws and protect people for future generations because things like the public trust doctrine are enshrined in cases and cases over time. Given how wonky this stuff is, Levi and Isaac, and that you're, and yet nevertheless, you play this critical role of being the human body with the story that needs to be told in court and has, because of this, what is the term again? Writ of habeas corpus, that's the only writ, term. Writ, that's writ of mandamus. Yep, I, writ of mandamus. I have, have experienced many of those. <laughs> yeah, so how do you guys complement your work? Like what does your other climate activism look like? Um, Levi, and maybe I can talk, start with you and then you can punt it to Isaac. Like what other things are you doing outside of these wonky legal forms of activism to raise awareness on climate? And I'm wondering too, like how do you speak to grow to the adults in your life about it? Knowing that so many adults were inactive on climate for so long. Yeah, so. Oh, I guess I can't. Levi, we can't hear you, unfortunately. I think you're having some connection issues. So maybe while you collect yourself, um, Isaac, maybe you can start and let us know again, like outside of the case, what does your climate activism look like? And how are you interfacing with adults in the movement who maybe haven't been as active as they should have been? Yeah, so my climate activism has not only is with the lawsuit, but I also do these one day trainings with my mom. Um, and we teach youth about the climate crisis and how their voice is really impactful and important. Um, just before I came to school, actually, we had our last training out in Oakland, California. Um, it was a community school that we did it at. And it was a minority serving school and also undocumented um, serving school. And so I feel like I, my role in this climate movement is to provide information and resources to younger generations. They can take whatever they want from it. They can take it and run with it, or they could just sit in it. But as long as they are aware of uh, the climate crisis, they will always have, um, they will always like understand the severity of it and how it's important. Um, and so I've been doing that for six years or so. Um, and then I'm also, like I said, um, I'm at Howard and I kind of want to do this uh, project thing. So Howard um, just partnered with Disney um, and it's a scholarship fund where they are funding student projects, um, digital uh, media projects. Um, and so right now I'm working on creating a treatment and um, rough script um, explaining uh, uh, POC's involvement in the climate crisis and um, juxtaposing effort with um, uh, impact. Um, because unfortunately, um, POCs are the most impacted uh, demographic with this climate crisis and their stories are often not highlighted or told or taken seriously. A lot of the times it's, their stories try to be more palatable for white audiences and white sympathy. And so this um, 
digital journalistic approach is uh, that I could tell the raw stories without any censorship and they could really get their uh, message out there. And so that's what I'm working on right now. Um, and maybe that might be my uh, thesis or something, <laughs> senior year, um, but we'll see. Nice, it could be the rest of your life, you don't know. Exactly. Um, we're almost out of time, guys. And I know George has a old man soccer league to get to. So I'd love for us to kind of close out the Zoom um, with more practices of hope. I really want to honor both the long careers that Andrea and George have had in this work, but also the intensity of your involvement, Isaac. And knowing that hope is our greatest resource, hope is the sunshine that fuels everything that we do like what's giving you hope right now um and andrea we can maybe start with you pass it to george and then close out with isaac yeah we're seeing a change in the law you know we are getting dissenting opinions that um justice ginsburg called messages in the messages in a bottle to future generations about what the law should be mm. So those messages in a bottle right now are out there. So judges are recognizing that they have a constitutional role to protect the rights of children. And we've been seeing that in Oregon, Alaska, Montana, it's you know all around the world, the Netherlands, Belgium, France. I mean, it's really exciting to see that the law is starting to catch up with what the science says is happening. So that's what gives me hope is that I feel there's we're right at that shift and um, it's a really exciting moment and the Juliana plaintiffs are really the ones who are about to push that boulder over the hill because they have inspired all of those cases and all of those judges. It really comes back to that Juliana case. So we are right there. Um, and that's really what gives me hope, Ashley. Thanks, Andrea. George, what's giving you hope? Yeah, well, thank you, Ashley, for letting me sit in today. This was, it was great to just be here and fanboy a little bit and see and meet Isaac and Levi and, and talk with Andrea and you. Um, you know, I mean, I was at the Portland courthouse for the Ninth Circuit argument. Uh, I think it was 2020, it was before COVID. And that was just one of the most inspiring days at a courthouse I've ever seen in my life. Uh, the the students in Portland area all skipped school. There were kids, there were high school kids lined up around the block. They had to have an overfilled room that day downstairs with a big TV, uh, with all the people there, hundreds of people watching that argument uh, in front of the Ninth Circuit panel that day. And you know, it was win, lose, or draw on that particular day. Uh, all those, all those. Um, youth were inspired you know and some of those people are going to take that and they're going to they're going to become activists and and maybe there's some lawyers scientists uh organizers all, all the tools in the toolkit that we need to to shape a better world and have people be public interest minded and communitarian minded to look towards um you know addressing these these urgent problems that we face so for me uh seeing that that day um and being there for it you know obviously was it was incredibly hopeful um, and again, you know, generally the case, I think, generally does that. But I, I think it's important to have that lens. I think Andrea put it in a, in a perfect way better than what I was trying to say, which is, 
uh, those descents, maybe this is a 40-year project and the descents of today become the majorities of the next generation. So I view my own work through that lens. You know, I have a 16-year-old daughter who's already talking about maybe being being an attorney. Um, if I can't talk her out of it or, 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 or she, maybe a, a judge one day, she, you know, she, she may be destined since both her mother and I are both attorneys. And um, so when I view my own work, um, if I'm not successful in, in an idea and enshrining an idea and codifying it, then I'm going to lay down a marker and maybe, and maybe she and her generation are the ones that are successful in getting that to be um, a winning idea uh, down the road. And so, you know, for me, that, that helps me have hope thinking about it with that kind of generational lens of, of struggle and social change. So thank you again for having me today. Yeah, thanks, George. Uh, we're gonna try to get you out in time. Isaac, what's given you hope? What, what keeps you fueled? Um... What keeps me fueled is knowing that even though this court case has been going on for seven years of my life, I'm now an adult. I'm 20 years old, I can vote and participate in the democratic process. And there's a whole bunch of youth who are flooding the polls and voting now and not settling for the status quo and wanna make an effective change in their communities. And that is what really gives me hope. People my age are the most politically active they've been in so long. And we all have a role to play and everyone's trying to navigate their own way through it, but everyone's working towards the same goal. And that's what really gives me hope. Awesome. So we've got a few minutes left. I wanna just uh, refer people back to the Q&A function. If you have any sort of last questions for Isaac and Andrea, I'm really excited to share the podcast. It's been this incredible journey um, for me as an activist to realize that actually, Social change is not that complicated. It takes real in-person connection. It takes real organizing, not social media organizing. It takes going down, meeting people, using your voice. It takes all strategies, voting, working at the legislature, working in the courts, and being able to recognize that it is the long game. Um, and so wanting to stay resourced as a community so that we're in it for the long game. I'm just reminding everybody to smile today, uh, laugh today, try to say writ of habeas corpus or writ of mandamus 10 times really fast in the mirror. Um, and just remember, we're really grateful for all of you. Um, thanks so much. The Hero's Journey is brought to you by the Center for Food Safety. Production by Julia Ranney and Ashley Lukens. Editing and social media by Amanda Lillibridge, Duray Shin, and Annalisa Camacho. Theme song by Walker Lukens and Adam Mason, and audio engineering by Adam Mason. You can find us across all podcast platforms and follow us at Center for Food Safety on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook, and CFS True Food on Twitter. We're on the web at theheroesjourneypodcast.com. Do you have a hero you'd like to see on the podcast? Fill out the form in the show notes or email us at theheroesjourneypod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, like and subscribe and make sure you'll never miss an episode. We'll see you in a few weeks.